be seated. Well, it's great to be back here with you this morning. Uh, Cheryl and I and 45 other people returned from Israel on Friday evening. So if you see some people staggering around kind of bleary-eyed, don't know what they're doing, those are the people that went to Israel with us. So I see several of you all here this morning. I expected them all at 8.30 service, but they didn't come there. So anyway, but uh, we, we thank God for your prayers and we thank God for His blessings. Uh, you're, you're really in a tour like that. You're dependent so much on the weather and God gave us great weather, a safe travel, good health. Um, we had a wonderful time of fellowship, building some new relationships and strengthening some existing ones. To me, one of the great things about a, a tour like that is just the, the relationships that are built and, and deepened. So we had a great time, but we're, we're glad to be back. It's wonderful to be back here with you all. As you all know, when you travel and go away, it's always great to get back home. I want to thank Justin Kinsley. Justin's our uh, pastor of student ministries. He went along and just helped with a lot of the details of the trip and uh, videoed uh, me speaking at several places. We'll have some of that online if you want to watch some of those on location. In fact, I'm going to have one here this morning for us in a few minutes. But anyway, I appreciate Justin. Also, thank Jay for his excellent pulpit ministry uh, while we were away. Uh, Jay and our staff make it very easy uh, for Cheryl and, and, and me to be away, and uh, we greatly appreciate that. We really do. So, so thank you so much to them. As we uh, approach Palm Sunday next week and our hearts and minds begin to focus on uh, the cross and the empty tomb, uh, I want to bring a message this morning from Matthew chapter 26. So if you'll turn your Bibles there with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, the setting of this passage is one of the places we visited on our trip. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me begin reading in Matthew 26 and verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and two of the sons of Zebedee. That would be, of course, James and John. And he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is, man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Well, so reads God's inspired and errant word. I'll never forget a uh, shocking event that happened back in March of 1974. Some of you who were alive at that time, I'm sure you'll remember this, but it was reported all over the world at that time. It kind of dominated the headlines for a day or two. I was, uh, I guess, about 13 years old at that time, and I remember watching the news that night and saw a report about a Japanese soldier named Lieutenant Haru Onada and he comes walking out of the Philippine jungles after hiding there for 29 years after the end of World War II. Uh, the Japanese surrendered in 1945. World War II ended, but Lieutenant Haru refused to surrender. 
He said he wouldn't surrender until one of his superior officers came and commanded him to surrender. So he evaded capture uh, for 29 years there living in the jungles. Finally, in 1974, he's convinced to end his private war and give up. And if you remember the footage of that, I'll never forget it. He emerged from the jungle in his uniform. He still has his sword and he has his rifle that's still in working condition. Uh, later on, he wrote a book that was appropriately titled, No Surrender. <clears throat> now, all the world kind of looked on, and I remember at the time, I was just 13 looking at the guy and thinking how stupid that was, you know, riding out down there in the jungles. You know, this war's been over for 29 years. What in the world are you doing, you know, down there uh, living on, you know, coconut milk and bugs and whatever else you can find? But he, he was stubborn and foolish because he would not uh, give up and he wouldn't surrender. And when I, I thought about our passage this week, uh, sadly, the, the lives of many professing believers are like Lieutenant Onada. They spend their lives kind of hiding out, if you will, from God, doing everything they can to, to, to avoid fully, unconditionally surrendering uh, their life to the Lord. They're, they're kind of stubbornly refusing and really foolishly refusing to surrender their lives uh, to the Lord. I thought it was interesting in some of the reading I did, Lieutenant Onada, he's quoted as saying this, when I finally surrendered, the past seemed like a dream. Isn't that interesting? The, the surrender was a, a turning point in his life. Everything before that seemed like a dream. And really the same is true of us as believers. True life begins when we surrender our lives lock, stock, and barrel to the Lord. Everything before that in some ways in our lives is just like a dream. The main point of our text this morning is a very simple but a profound one, and that is the life of significance is a life of surrender to God. If you want to have a life that is significant, you have to have a life of surrender to God. If, if you want to be assured of an insignificant life, then fail to surrender your life to the Lord. That, that's how you live an insignificant life. But if you want to have a life of significance, you have to have a life of surrender. And there's no greater example of surrender to God than the surrender of our Lord Jesus to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died on the cross. So Jesus provides for us the example of unconditionally surrendering our lives to God in prayerful dependence. Now, to unfold this truth this morning, I've got three simple points. I want to just briefly look at the setting of this passage, then look at the sorrow of Jesus, and then I want to look at his surrender and how it serves as a model for us. So let's briefly establish the setting here. Um, it's, it's Thursday night. It's April the 2nd, I believe, of A.D. 33. Um, it's the night before Jesus will go, on the go to the cross. It's, it's probably uh, near midnight and uh, the cross is closing in on Jesus. In fact, uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson said this years ago, he said, the events of the cross have been gathering like a storm through this book, but the thunder begins to rumble here. So a dark cloud, uh, the dark cloud of the cross is hanging over these verses. Now to back up in the context just a little bit, Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples. That's in the, the southwest part of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they celebrated the Passover there, and Jesus has transformed that Passover into uh, the first Lord's Supper. And you remember while they're there, Jesus prophesies his death. He prophesies the pouring out of his blood, that his blood will be uh, the new covenant which is poured out in his blood, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Remember, Judas leaves the upper room scene there to go out and betray Jesus. And then from the upper room there in the southwest part of the city, Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples wind their way down through that deep Kidron Valley to the western slope of the Mount of Olives uh, to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, it's one of, one of Jesus' favorite places to go. Now, so you can get a little bit of a feel for the place. While we were there this last week, I think it was last Monday, um, I filmed a video there, and so I want to show that to you now, and then we'll come back and pick up with the message. Now, welcome to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're here with our tour group in Israel on uh, the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. And uh, here on the Mount of Olives, this uh, uh, mountain is just east of the city of Jerusalem. And you can see right here uh, below us is the Kidron Valley, and I think you can see the Temple Mount area there behind us. And uh, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, this area that we're in, is a, a, was a, about a mile-long uh, area of, of groves of olive trees back in Jesus' day. And you can see one of these trees here, uh, standing here next to me. There's some, some huge ones here, I mean, that are several feet around in a diameter. And uh, this is the place where Jesus came um, after he was uh, uh, betrayed. Uh, you know, the, the betrayer, uh, Judas Iscariot, was found out, if you will, or he, he leaves to go and betray Jesus. Um, it's right after the, uh, the Last Supper. Uh, the disciples are with Jesus over in the city of Jerusalem, and uh, they make their way down again through this deep Kidron Valley, and uh, they come up here to this area known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in Luke's Gospel that Jesus came uh, to uh, the Mount of Olives here, as was his custom. And so Jesus would come here to this place evidently often. There's probably someone who was a, a wealthy person who was a benefactor of Jesus that had probably a private garden in here in this area in Gethsemane, and Jesus would come here often. That's how, uh, when Jesus is here praying, that Judas knows where to come find Jesus because it's in this area where Jesus is arrested. Uh, they come with Judas. Judas knows where to find Jesus. It's his custom to come here, and they come, and, and Jesus is arrested in, uh, in this place. And so... Um, Jesus probably, during his final week in Passion Week, probably spent some time over in Bethany, the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but some people believe that he spent some of the nights here in the Garden of Gethsemane in this area here. Now, Gethsemane means oil press. Uh, this is a place where olives were grown, where olives were pressed, and uh, it's a, a fitting picture, as we'll talk about later in our message. Uh, Jesus comes here to the place of the olive press, and his soul is pressed and crushed here. Um, as he cries out and he prays to his father. Now, some people believe that these olive trees, some of them, uh, we don't, there, there aren't any in this area here that are as large, but again, as I said earlier, some of them are massive. Some people believe that some of these olive trees that are here were there, were, were present at the time uh, when Jesus was praying. Um, probably that's not true. Uh, Josephus tells us that all these trees were cut down um, in A.D. 70 when the Romans came in here and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Probably the oldest trees in here are about 800 years old, but they've tapped into the roots of some of these trees, and some of the roots are 2,300 years old, which would go back to the time of Jesus. So these olive trees have a massive root system, so it's some of the same root systems, the trees that come out of them, but not the exact uh, trees themselves. Uh, when you go down uh, further this way, uh, there's the Church of All Nations, and inside of the Church of All Nations is a huge stone there, a slab of stone or rock, and that's the traditional place where Jesus left his disciples and went there uh, to go there uh, to pray and to cry, cry out to the Father three times. You know, Father, um, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. But in each of those places, of course, Jesus finally says, not my will, but thy will be done. 
Well, let's go back now to uh, Matthew 26, and then we'll finish the message. Well, if that's helpful to kind of see the setting there a little bit, if you go on down further, there are just these huge, massive uh, olive trees that are down there. And it's a, a really, it's a beautiful, one of the more serene places where you go to Israel even today. But, it, but it's there in Gethsemane that Jesus unconditionally surrenders his will uh, to the Father. Now, in verse 37, we move from the setting here to the sorrow in this passage. And we see here that in his humanity, Jesus struggles to submit and surrender to the Father's will. Uh, Gethsemane, I think, reveals the true humanity of Jesus more than any other event in his ministry. Uh, the humanity of Jesus is on full display here. Up to this point, think about it, in the life of Jesus, Jesus is always in control and full power. Uh, Jesus may be quieting a demon, uh, calming a storm, but whatever he faces, he's absolutely fearless. In fact, he even fearlessly predicts his own death time and time again. Over and over again, Jesus will say, the Son of Man's going to be betrayed, He's going to suffer, He's going to be delivered in the hands of evil men, He's going to be killed and rise again on the third day. But so throughout, throughout the tumultuous events of the life of Jesus, Jesus knew no fear, but all of a sudden here in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's an abrupt change. In fact, it's so much so, Kent Hughes says it like this, here we are taken into Jesus' heart as never before. In Gethsemane, we see a Jesus who has never before appeared in any of the Gospels. I mean, we see a Jesus here that we've never seen before. This is a totally unique event in the life of Jesus. And again, as I said earlier, at Gethsemane, which means oil press, Jesus experiences a crushing of the soul and the spirit. Now, if you go to, to Gethsemane today, as you saw in the video there, if you go down to some other parts of it, it's kind of a foreboding place. It's filled with these huge gnarled olive trees, and it's nighttime, and so these trees would kind of cast their twisted shadows on the ground around Jesus. And our Lord there is pounded and pressed by the, the thought of the cross that is looming before him. In fact, it's so much so that in Luke twenty two forty four it says this, and being in agony... He was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So Jesus here is just sweating profusely. And some believe that this indicates the pressure was so great that uh, the capillaries dilated and burst, if you will, underneath Jesus' skin, and blood actually kind of seeped out through his skin. But I don't think that's true because Luke's gospel says that he sweat like great drops of blood. So the idea is that it's similar to that, but it doesn't say it's blood. So I think the picture here is water was pouring off of his body like he was bleeding. The sweat resembled great thick drops of blood, if you will, that was dropping off him. So Jesus is soaked in sweat, and he's in the crucible of suffering here. I ran across this quote by Dr. S. Lewis Johnson about two weeks ago. This is beautiful. It's simple but beautiful. He says this, there's no easy Calvary even for our Lord. Somehow we think, you know, Calvary was easy for Jesus. You know, he's God. There was no easy Calvary even for, for our Lord. Jesus recoils in horror at what he's facing. There's a, a deep inner revulsion and an unremitting dread that Jesus is experiencing here. In fact, you'll notice verse 38 he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus is so traumatized and so terrorized, he feels like he's dying. 
And it says in verse 39, he went a little beyond them. So he leaves uh, the, the disciples behind there, Peter, James, and John. And he, he, he uh, fell on his face and began to pray. Now, Mark's gospel says that Jesus was falling, which gives the implication that he was repeatedly collapsing on the ground. So he walked a ways and he got up and then he fell to the ground. He fell to the ground and got up. He walks a little further, falls down again, walks a little further and collapses again. So he was falling to the ground. So Jesus is experiencing here a deep-seated anxiety, a wrenching dread and just kind of an onslaught really, if you will, of terror that's just unrelenting. So Jesus is in agony there in the Garden of Eden. I mean, in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's an old song that expresses this. It's called, Lead Me to Calvary. It says, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. There's agony that Jesus experiences there in the garden. Now, there's a great lesson for us. I want to pause just a moment and bring this out because one thing we learn here from Jesus' experience in Gethsemane, Jesus can enter into anything that you're experiencing in your life because he's a sympathetic high priest. You may be enduring some trial in your life and wondering if there's anybody who can understand what you're going through. All of us have been there before where you're going through something in your life and you're wondering, where is someone who can understand what I'm experiencing? Now, sometimes there's a few people who, who do understand, and sometimes it's wonderful to have a friend or someone you know who's been through the same thing you're going through who can in some way understand and relate to you. But often it's difficult to find someone who can understand what we're going through. But I want you to know that there's one who always understands whatever it is you're facing in life. Philip Ryken, in his com one of his commentaries, says this. He says, think of the darkest place you've ever been. Think of the place of anguish and pain, discouragement and despair. Think of the place where you were alone in your suffering and all your worst fears were about to come true. Think of the place where the one thing you wanted was the one thing God had determined you could not have. Think of the place where you were trapped and there seemed to be no way out. Think of the place where you wished to God that you could be anywhere else in the universe except in the place where you were. Think of the place where things got so bad that you almost thought you were going to die and maybe you almost did. Jesus went to that dark place and a place even darker in the garden they call Gethsemane. Never ever say to Jesus, Lord, you don't know what I'm going through. <laughs> don't ever say that to him. He always knows. Look, have you ever dreaded some future event? I mean, something, in, in fact, right now, there may be something in your future you're dreading. Jesus understands. There may be an hour or an event in your life that you hoped would never come, and it's come. Jesus understands. Have you ever been so filled with fear and paralyzing terror that you felt like you could die? Jesus understands. There is no pit in your life or in my life so deep that Jesus is not deeper still. Jesus has been to the deepest, darkest place. I don't encourage you, if you when you find yourself in that place, lean into Jesus when you feel crushed and pressed in your soul. Uh, press into the one whose soul was pressed for you. He's a sympathetic high priest for us. I love uh, 
in Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 makes this a statement about Jesus as our, our great high priest. And in Hebrews 5 and verse 7, you might want to look this up later on your own this week. It says, in the days of his flesh, that is Jesus, he offered up both, both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears. Imagine the Lord Jesus crying loudly and weeping. He was, he was crying out to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Now, that sounds kind of odd. You say, well, Jesus learned obedience. I thought he was obedient. Well, in the Greek there, there's a definite article before the word obedience. What I think it's saying there is Jesus learned the obedience, the obedience of going to the cross for us uh, from the things uh, that he suffered. So it's a great lesson for us when we go into the dark pit of life. However deep we may find ourselves, Jesus is deeper still. Now, the final point and the main point I want to highlight here this morning is what I call the surrender, beginning here in verse 39. Jesus came to the disciples and he finds them sleeping there. So he leaves eight of the disciples behind. You remember Judas is already gone and he takes Peter, James, and John with him. And the Lord Jesus leaves them behind and he, he, uh, it says in uh, verse 39, Jesus fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible. And that's stated there and the way it's stated in the Greek is, is positive. If it is possible, and it is, is really the way it's stated. Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So the request of Jesus is stated here positively. Father, if there's any possible way out, please do it. He's pleading with the Father, Jesus is, for relief. And he wants to make sure here, if you will, for one final time that the cross is absolutely necessary. You know, perhaps there could be another way. He goes back then after this and he finds the disciples sleeping. And he says to Peter, you know, can't you keep watch for one hour? And then he goes away at verse 42 a second time and prayed. Notice here, though, he restates the earlier prayer, but with a significant shift. My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Now he states it in the negative. So he knows now that it's not within God's will for him to avoid the cup. He knows there's no other way. He goes back again, finds a disciple sleeping again, and goes back in verse 43. He came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples. So he repeats this a third round of prayer. Now, by the way, one thing that's interesting here is the contrast between Jesus and the disciples. I mean, the disciples, you remember, especially Peter is the leader of all this. He's boldly professing he'll never depart from Jesus. He'll never leave him. He'll even die with Jesus, yet he can't stay awake for a few hours here with the Lord. In Mark's gospel, it's interesting. When Jesus goes to Peter, he says to him, Simon. He's using Peter's old pre-conversion name. He's saying, Simon, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? Now, to be fair to the disciples, it's late at night. It's after midnight, probably two or three in the morning. Uh, they've had Passover. They've drank a few cups of wine. Their eyes are heavy. So let's not be too hard on them here. But still, with all the, the, the proud boasting they've made, it's a sad picture of them here, sacked out three times when Jesus comes back. 
Now, one author I read really summarizes this whole scene. He says this, Jesus was not trying to avoid the will of God. He was ensuring this cup of suffering was the will of God. Certainly his flesh recoiled from the prospect of dying in agony, and certainly it was an unimaginable burden to absorb the pain and sin of the world in his body. But the heart of his prayer was always, may your will be done. He wanted nothing other than what the Father wanted for him. He had no other agenda than to do the Father's will. So at Gethsemane, Jesus dies to his own will, and he surrenders his will uh, to the Father. So in that sense, many people have said Jesus actually died before he died on Calvary. That is, he died to himself, and he died to his own will. James Edwards says it like this, the cross is a matter of the heart before it's a matter of the hand. And that's true in your life and in my life. Everything is ultimately a matter of the heart before it's a matter of the hand. He had to surrender before he offered the sacrifice. Now, let me add one thing here I thought about this week, and this is so important. There's a key insight here about our salvation. Gethsemane makes it clear to us that Jesus died this death because there was no other way for sinners to be saved. When Jesus says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, if there was another way for us to be saved, God the Father would have done it that way. So since that's true, it's a cosmic affront to God to go to God and say, God, I think I can come to you some other way than through Jesus and through the cross. I mean, think about that. Jesus and his death on the cross is the only way to God. He had to drink that cup. There was no other way. If there was another way, God would have provided it. So think of the folly, really, of someone today coming to God and saying, I I appreciate what Christ did for me, but I want to come my own way. I'm going to come through my own good works that I've done. I'm going to take the cross, but I'm going to add other things to what the Lord Jesus has done. No, that is the only way. It's the only way to God. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if you're here today and you think there's some other way that you can get to God other than through Jesus Christ and through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, you're mistaken. Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. There was no other way. There's no other way to be saved. In fact, in in Acts 4.12, Peter says there, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's it's an exclusive gospel. There's a, a narrow gate that leads to salvation that leads to life, and that gate is the Lord Jesus himself. Now, the big question here is in this passage that people often ask is, what is terrifying and troubling Jesus so much? Why is he so fearful? I mean, certainly there's the dread. Jesus knows he's going to be scourged brutally and beaten, a crown of thorns on his head. He's going to carry the cross, and he's going to suffer the the horrors of crucifixion. But there's a lot more here for Jesus than just physical suffering. A lot of people have suffered martyrdom or death and have gone more calmly and heroically than Jesus appears here. In fact, a lot of pagans in church history have used this incident in Jesus' life as an argument against Christianity because they'll make comments like, well, you know, when Socrates died, um, he died with great courage and with great nobility. Yet here you have Jesus uh, crying and, and, and crying out to the Father. But we have to remember here what's terrorizing Jesus is not the physical suffering at the hand of men, but it's the spiritual suffering he will experience at the hand of his Father. 
Jesus knows he's dying as a ransom for sin. Tim Keller says it like this, In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus turns to the Father, and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, and he staggered. I mean, again, you can't say it more powerfully than that. The spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that he would experience when he separated from his Father. Think about standing before a holy God and just having to answer for your own sins. It's a horror. I mean, it's a, uh, the worst thing you can imagine. But think about standing before a holy God, not just answering for your sins, but answering for all the sins of the entire world. That's what Jesus is contemplating. Jesus was God forsaken. When he hung there on the cross, God was forsaken by God. And he says, let this cup pass from me. The cup here is the cup of God's wrath against sin. In fact, you remember earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said to James and John, two of his disciples, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Of course, the answer is no. Um, Scripture often connects the wrath of God with the imagery of a cup. Back in Jeremiah 25, 15, it says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, 17, he writes, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the, of the, the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk the dregs to the uh, who've drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So the cup here speaks of the cup of the wrath of God. One writer I read this week said, the cup here is the bitter brew of the judgment of God. And Jesus knows that's what he's facing, something no other person has ever um, had to face. Now, David McLeod has a, this quote, and I read this. This is good. Listen to this carefully. This is rich. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew, terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. That's powerful. Look, it's not that Jesus went to the cross without fear. That's not the glory of it. The, the glory of it is he went to the cross terrified, terrified of what he knew and terrified of what he didn't know, but he took damnation for us lovingly. That's a good way to think about the cross these next couple of weeks as we approach a Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday. What the Lord Jesus experienced for us on the cross was damnation, and he, he took it lovingly. Jesus drank the last drop of the fierce, infinite wrath of God against human sin. And the suffering was infinite suffering. He became sin for us. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus unconditionally surrenders to the Father's will for this three times. Not my will, thy will be done. Your will be done. Look, if there's no Gethsemane, there's no Calvary. If there's no surrender, there's no sacrifice. Jesus does what he commanded his disciples to do. He takes up his cross, and he chooses the will of God, and he surrenders his will to the Father. And in doing that, he's the perfect model for us. 
There's a striking contrast here that we dare not miss. Think about the first Adam, you know, historical Adam, the Adam in the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam, he faced a tree. Remember he faced the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he yielded to the will of Satan and he put his own will above the will of God. And it happened in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And he plunged the whole world into ruin and corruption. Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane is pictured as the last Adam. Just as the first Adam was in a garden, he's in a garden. The first Adam faced a tree, he faces a tree, the cross. But rather than putting his own will above the will of God, he places his will beneath the will of God. And the last Adam does in a garden what the first Adam failed to do in a garden. And through his actions, the world that had fallen because of the actions of that first Adam, that world was redeemed. So Jesus surrenders his will to the divine will. And as those called to follow Jesus, Jesus is our model of surrender. He denied himself. And what did he command us to do? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He's our example in this. The real issue, the bottom line issue in your life and in my life is the measure of our surrender to God. That's what life's all about. You can tell everything you need to know about the life of a person if you know the measure of their surrender to God. The life of significance is a life of surrender to God. And I pray that every one of us here this morning can say to our Father, I surrender all. Now, we sang that song a few moments ago. If we didn't mean it, God forgive us for in any way we haven't, haven't surrendered ourselves to him. Can we say to God in every area of our lives, not my will, but your will be done. I've told stories here often about General William Booth, founded the Salvation Army, founded it in London. Um, William Booth got the poor of London on his heart, and he did everything he could to reach them with the gospel. And someone asked General William Booth one time the secret of his success, and he said this. He hesitated, some tears came to his eyes, and he responded, I'll tell you the secret, God has all of me there was. There, has been, there have been men, many men with greater brains than me, men with greater opportunities than me, but I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And that's the secret of life. It's for God to have all of us there is. And so the question that faces all of us this morning is, will we unconditionally surrender to God in prayerful dependence? Have you ever gone to the Father as Jesus does here in prayer and surrendered yourself to him? Now, the one thing I believe that holds people back is I think many, many people down deep in their heart, they're afraid to do that because they think, if I do that, if I really surrender everything to God, what is he going to ask me to do? Well, let me tell you this. He's going to ask you to do something that will make you more happy and more fulfilled than anything you've ever done in your life. Don't be afraid to do that. It's folly to not do it. Andrew Murray said this years ago, it's a, a, a great quote to think about in this life, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life that's yielded to him. If you yield your life to God and give yourself to him, God is going to accept full responsibility uh, for your life and for all that you need. Don't hold back saying, well, you know, what's God maybe going to ask me to do with my family or, or, or with my money or, or, or with my occupation? Or what's God going to ask me to do if I really surrender all to him? Oh, he'll ask you to do things that will bless your life and other people like you've never seen before. Bruce Larson was a counselor and helped many people, and, and he, uh, he often helped people who were struggling to surrender their life to Christ. 
And he says this, he says, For many years I worked in New York City and counseled at my office, and many people came to me wrestling with fully surrendering their lives to Christ. And often I would take them, and they would, I would take them on a walk from my office down to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. In the entrance of that building, there's a gigantic statue of Atlas, a beautifully proportioned muscular man who with all of his muscles straining is holding the world on his shoulders. There he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, and he can barely stand under the burden. Then I would point to the person and say, that's one way to live, trying to carry your world on your shoulders. Then I'd say, come across the street. On the other side of Fifth Avenue is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there behind the high altar is a little shrine of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years of age. And with no effort, he's holding the whole world in one hand. And he said, my point was graphically illustrated. And then he would say this, you have a choice. You can carry the world on your shoulders or you can say, I give up, Lord. Here's my life. I give you my world, the whole world. It's two basic ways to live life. You can live life straining under the crushing burden of all that's happening in your life. Or you can say, Lord, here's my life. Here's my world. I give you my whole world. And that's what God desires from every one of us. If you've never done that before, or maybe if you have, it's always good to come back to the Lord and continuously in our lives to give Him our world. And we do that the same way Jesus did it. We do it in prayer. He's there talking to the Father, saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Look, there's never a better time to do it than now, especially if you're a young person. If you wait 10 or 20 years to surrender yourself to the Lord, you're going to look back someday, and I can promise you, you'll say, man, I wish I'd have done this 10 or 20 years ago. It's never going to get easier to do it than it's going to be right now. And it's something you'll never, ever regret. Talk to a lot of people older in life, saying, oh, I just wish I'd have come to know Christ earlier in my life, or I'd have surrendered my life earlier. You never meet an older person who ever regrets giving their world uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendering to Him. Why not give your life to the one now who drank that cup for you? Let's pray together. If there's anyone here this morning, and you've heard what I've said about that cup that Jesus drank, and you've never accepted what the Lord Jesus has done for you, that's what you need to do right now. Jesus drank that brew of the judgment of God for you on the cross. You don't want to have to stand before God in your sin someday. Jesus took it all. He bore it all for you. Why not come and receive Him and accept Him and take Him to be your Savior? Father, for those of us who know You, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never surrendered everything to You in prayerful dependence, they've never come to You and said, Lord, here's my world. I give You my world, the whole world, that they do it now. And Father, for those who have, I pray that we'll come afresh this morning and lay down our burdens and lay down our life and again in joyful surrender. Say, Lord, I give you my world. I give you the whole world. Well, Father, take us up and use us, I pray. Continue to minister to us as we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Help us to be witnesses for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction as we're dismissed. Again, it's great to be back here with you all. We miss you all when we're gone. It's wonderful to be back here, and you know how that is. It's great, great to be home. 
Um, if you're our guest or a visitor, we're so glad you're with us this morning. If you go out these doors around to the left there, you'll see a welcome center, and there's some folks there that love to, to welcome you to our church and give you some more information about it. Well, let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we commit ourselves to the Lord. As we leave here this morning in these next couple of weeks as we, we build up to, the, to, the, to Easter Sunday, um, let's go forth now empowered by the Lord and ask, asking God to use us to use the opportunities we have in our lives to witness for him as, as surrendered vessels uh, the Lord can take up and use. So let's commit ourselves to him now. We do that in the name of the Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.